last time on Strange New Worlds. I'm really curious about what a biosign actually is. There are so many different things that constitute a biosign or a biosignature, and almost none of them in isolation is enough to prove that sort of thing to the scientific community. If you're looking at another planet's atmosphere, you see certain wavelengths of light getting bitten out of the star's spectrum whenever the planet comes between us and the star itself, then you can read those chunks that get taken out and interpret them as, okay, this is oxygen, or this is carbon monoxide, or some other component. And so when you can actually go to the surface of a planet, so if you're approaching that planet from a distance, this might be the only information you have to determine whether or not there's life there. So this method would be something that Starfleet itself might use to screen for inhabited planets, yeah. um, planets that might have life with them before they uh, send one of their vessels, <laughs> vessels uh, out. To, go and, to go investigate it. So that would be biosigns at a distance. You have a lot more to work with if you go physically to a place um, with your instruments, you know, in a backpack, or you set up some kind of remote laboratory. Right now I'm working on a project involving what we call chemosynthetic life. So mm. rather than photosynthetic, using light to, you know, get the energy the organism needs to perform all of its life functions. It's a, an organism that uses ambient chemical energy. So it's possible even from orbit you might look for a particular assemblage of minerals that might support a certain type of chemosynthetic organism and then you might look for the types of minerals that those chemosynthetic organisms are known to deposit themselves and seeing them up against each other um, you know on the surface of a planet um, you can see these minerals at a distance and say okay yeah like the minerals that are here tell us that there was enough chemical energy for this type of bacteria to sustain itself and look, here's some minerals that indicate maybe it did use those <laughs> minerals that were available to it to sustain itself. And now, the conclusion. So can you tell us a little more about these chemosynthetic organisms? Yeah. What, what exactly are they? Are they like a bear? Are they like yeah, a, is there a like tree? Dogs, dogs like running around eating rocks because I want yeah. one. It sounds like... I yeah. mean, maybe on another planet that could be. But <laughs> on our own planet, chemosynthetic life is mostly limited to bacteria, archaea, and certain single-celled eukarya, which we call protists. So these are exciting words that are just biologists and geobiologists' way of organizing all living things. So bacteria, you know, relatively simple single-celled organisms, sometimes live in colonies, don't have a central nucleus, you know, to their cells where they store all of their genetic information. Whereas eukarya do have that central organizational vessel. Um, and then you have archaea, which are sort of this weird hazy in-between, which can kind of do both. But generally on Earth, we find archaea tend to be, they tend to be pretty small, smaller even than bacteria, and they tend to live in particularly extreme environments. So chemosynthetic organisms tend to be these single-celled or loosely colonial type organisms that don't need very much energy to survive and so largely have colonized the parts of our planet that are very difficult for other more advanced or I should say more complicated creatures to survive in. So chemosynthetic life um, is probably not going to do too well in your vegetable garden. It would be difficult for something like a geobacter, as an example, to live there. 
whereas it's very difficult for something like the tomatoes in your garden to live deep, deep underground where the only energy source available is whatever's locked up in the chemical structure of the rocks on the walls of some deep subterranean cave. The tomato is not going to grow there, but the geobacter, this bacteria that eats rocks, it's geobacter, it loves it there, you know, and it thrives in those kinds of environments. So cool thing, and the reason that I, you know, as a planetary scientist study these chemosynthetic organisms is because on other planet surfaces, you know, the planets that we've visited so far with our instruments, I should say, um, like the surface of Mars, um, it's not a very hospitable place. There's not a lot of other types of energy available. So if you're trying to figure out, well, was there ever life here? Well, what was it living off of? The only thing for miles around is rocks, you know? Mm. So studying the organisms on Earth that live basically solely off of rocks and whatever trace amounts of organic carbon they can scrounge from the bodies of their fallen fellows, um, those are going to be our best analogs, um, our best means of understanding any possible life that was there or might still be there. That's very interesting. So let me see if I can, if I digested all of that. Definitely, yeah. Um, a lot of so points. So digest. <laughs> a chemosynthetic organism on Earth generally is a single-celled, very simple organism that mm -hmm. eats rocks mm -hmm. and generally survives in very low energy locations such as deep underground. Mm -hmm. And the reason why you want to study them is because that's the kind of life that we expect might be on other worlds? Yes. Yeah. Wow. And we don't understand too much about them because these particular organisms are kind of difficult to get at. So, so what are the kinds of questions that you're asking about these organisms in your research and how do you go about finding those answers? Yeah, so one of the big things is first to find those organisms. So there are many and varied reasons that a scientist might want to take a core of the earth. So taking a hollow drill and punching it down through the ground and taking out a long strip of the rock and sediment and everything that's down there. You do it for mining and prospecting purposes and stuff like that. So there's places in the world where these prospecting drill holes and sometimes mines are accessible to scientists. So that's sort of our avenue into the Earth's interior where we can pull up samples of water and samples of ground up rock and mud and sludge and things and bring them back to our labs and try to you know, we spread them out all over our desk and we look for it and we try to figure out, okay, what are the organisms that are actually living in here? And I say spread them out all over our desk only a little bit tug-in-cheek, you know, because sometimes you are literally, you know, busting up clumps of dirt to get a good sample that you can then try to purify and clean out and culture something from. But in my case, the organisms that I'm looking at came from groundwater from about 800 meters, so almost a kilometer below the surface, where there was a small amount of water trickling through the rocks there. And so when they drilled a hole down, the hole filled up with water. So you just take samples of water that are being replenished from the bottom of that. And that water actually has cells in it. It actually mm. carries away some of the organisms that were living on the surfaces of small gaps and cracks and pores in the rock. Um, and it brings them up to the surface for us and, you know, cap it really quick and we try to put them in conditions in the lab that they might like to grow in, you know. So we try to replicate the types of temperatures and the types of water chemistries and everything that they were experiencing underground 
And then if we can get enough of them to grow, then we can take some of them, extract their DNA, send it to a gene sequencer so that we can see, okay, like what genes do they have inside of them that might be useful for sulfate reduction. It's just one form of metabolism. Or what It's genes... like breathing sulfate instead of oxygen. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's a weird thing to eat, but mm-hmm. down there, there's plenty of sulfate around, as it turns out. In some case, there's, you know, there's plenty of iron oxides, you know, which something like Geobacter likes to eat. Sounds so. better than pizza. No, <laughs> oh, I completely <laughs> disagree. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so first question we ask is where are they? How many of them are, are there in this place? What exactly are they eating? How much of it do they need to survive, you know, bare minimum? And then what signs do they leave behind of their presence? Do they change something about the water chemistry? Do they change something about the mineralogy of the rocks around them? One of the frustrating things about searching for life in the universe is that the conditions under which life thrives are often very different from the conditions under which these biosigns get preserved and turned into an element of the geologic record. So our hope for finding life in the universe is sort of just where those spheres overlap. So where can we find a place where life could have been and then life stopped being so that we could preserve the biosignature <laughs> and then adjust our ways of looking for life in the universe to those conclusions. So speaking of biosignatures and preservation of life in the ancient past, mm-hmm. I remember this this meteorite. Oh, geez. Uh, and it... It was announced when I was just a very little kid, and I remember reading about it in the newspaper, getting very excited because there was a picture, this black and white picture, it's beautiful, of a meteorite that came from Mars, Mm -hmm. and it looked like there was a little tiny worm, like a single-celled bacterium Mm -hmm. on on it. Is this ALH84001? Yeah, that's the one, that's the one. So, Elise, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about this, this meteorite. I wish I had a better name. We can call it Alan, because... Okay, yeah, it came from Alan Alan Hills. That's what ALH stands for. Meteorites are named after where they're found. So, yeah, so if you ask some people, there's still debate as to whether or not this was a biosignature or not. So, basically, what they found... There's a mineral called carbonate, and it's a wide class of minerals that have a carbonate ion in them. And basically, you'll be most familiar with chalk. Basically, just think of chalks and clays. And basically, there were these little globules of carbonate in this otherwise mostly just volcanic-looking rock. But basically, there were these little carbonate globs, and inside those globs, there were little kind of shapes that you could see if you looked under a scanning electron microscope. And they looked a lot like bacteria. And also there were these chains, little chains of another mineral called magnetite, which is something that certain bacteria on earth create in these very specific shapes to help them navigate because it's basically like giving them a compass, very crude kind of way of determining which way is north so that you can move around with some kind of intelligence. But basically it's very hard to get magnetite to crystallize in this very specific shape that they found it like crystals have a habit they tend to this is why like certain stones you see if you pick up just kind of uncut quartz it's always going to be the same shape if you go out and pick up feldspars it's going to fracture a certain way minerals have habits that they like to form along and they like to break upon and biology kind of forces minerals to 
crystallize in ways that they wouldn't usually do. That's why you have bones. Mm -hmm. The minerals that make up your bones are naturally occurring. And the one in your teeth is called apatite, which is a fun fact. But you wouldn't find, like, just human skulls growing out of rocks somewhere. And basically they found what they thought was the equivalent of a human skull growing out of a rock in this meteorite. They found magnetite crystals that were formed in such a way that is basically impossible to do unless something really weird is happening. So it sounds like it's life. I mean, you've basically convinced me right here. Yeah, it's, it's very up in the air. There are a lot of ways to get those carbonate glob shapes. And we don't really know all that much about how magnetite crystallizes. Mm. There, there's been some work done on these bacteria, but it, we don't know anything about the conditions under which these rocks formed past what the mineralogy can tell us. Like, we didn't watch it happen. We don't know even what part of Mars it came from. It's definitely possible, but it's, it's something that, like, if you go out and just stamp your foot down and say, I believe there's life found in LH84001. Somebody's going to look at you like you're a crazy person. Because <laughs> um, it's kind of like what Cecilia was saying is, like, you can find individual weird things. Like, you find this magnetite. Okay, great. It's weird. But there could possibly be a way for this to happen without needing life. I don't know. It's, it's hard. It's hard to tell, especially because we, we found it. We didn't watch it fall from the sky. So Earth life could have done any number of things to it while it was sitting here. That brings up like a really interesting point that the search for life doesn't always involve searching for fossils, searching for biosignatures. A lot of it is doing laboratory simulations and going out in the field and looking for abiotic systems that could mimic these biological systems, either morphologically or chemically. Also, something interesting with biosignatures is looking for the beginning of life on Earth. Nobody really knows too much about it. People have a lot of different ideas. But looking for the first evidence of life, because the first life probably didn't leave too much behind for us that still remains. But looking for the first evidence of life, I mean, people are always kind of looking for the next oldest rock that they can fish a stromatolite out of. Stromatolites are these kind of fossilized bacterial mats. They're just imagine like a pillow made out of bacteria. It's like your worst nightmare. It's generally stromatolites that people are looking for. And I think the oldest evidence right now is the Greenland shale, is it? Yeah, so yeah. the oldest evidence is this rock in Ishua, uh, yeah. Greenland, that's um, basically doesn't have any of its original morphology preserved. It's been sort of mashed and partially metamorphosed, um, subjected to heat and pressure, but it has a lot of carbon in it's it that is... basically just graphite. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> what we would call isotopically light, you know, so... Um, what does that mean? So carbon is a particular element. It has a particular weight to it, but there are slightly different weights of carbon. And as it happens, it's easier for our cellular machinery to pick up and process the lighter carbon than the heavier carbon. So living things tend to concentrate lighter carbon atoms um, in one place, at least relative to the background that they're extracting their carbon from. So if you find a rock that's full of a lot of carbon and that carbon seems to be isotopically light relative to contemporary rocks around it, then you have kind of a strong evidence for life being there. So it sounds like the tricorder is a very fancy spectrometer. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it, it probably, I don't, the thing that bugs me about the tricorder, though, is, is that to look in certain wavelengths, like, you wouldn't get a lot of that light naturally standing on a planet. So if you were to look in, like, um, if you were to want to look inside of something, per se, and 
Like, I don't think... Does anybody even use x-rays oh, for... I always... They do, For yeah. spectra? Yeah. Interesting. So, so okay. I use a lot of x-ray spectra. So... SEM. Um, yeah, okay. So scanning electron yeah. microscopy and do energy XRD? dispersive. Uh, yeah, XRD2 and okay. energy dispersive spectroscopy. XRD stands for? X-ray diffraction. Okay. Yeah, so so all of these things use X-rays. And so you're looking for, so X-rays just being that chunk of the electromagnetic spectrum, the spectrum of light that are more energetic than UV even. So I, I always assumed the tricorder was blasting. Yeah, I'm just lasers. I'm worried about that. <laughs> like so the, the tri I'm like, okay, if it's if it's a visible spectrometer you could scan something but you wouldn't know much about because you always see bones going up to something and be like, his organ structure is completely different. It's like, damn it, Jim <laughs> and it's, it's like <laughs> Uh, That's but, a great image. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but if you were to do that, I guess everyone on the Enterprise is just being irradiated constantly. Bones like I gotta get you a checkup, damn it! And he just comes up and irradiates you. Ooh, my um, guess is it's also a mass spectrometer because I bet because if someone's like breathing yeah. or like giving off like uh, giving off gases or whatever, you yeah. could identify those gases maybe. So a, a mass spectrometer rather than looking at a spectrum of light, you're looking at a spectrum of masses. So like we discussed, like comparing heavier carbon to lighter carbon, you know, you can have, so you can see those biases at a molecular level. It's like um, a really fancy bar chart of how heavy different things are. Yeah. So. so potentially, maybe it's got like a little gas chromatograph mass spectrometer in there to measure emissions. You know, it'd be pretty horrifying if it was the kind of mass spectrometer that you like shoot something with a laser and measure the vapor that comes off. Like, oh yeah, secondary ion yeah. mass spectrometry. Like the one that's on the Curiosity, Curiosity rover that zaps rocks, yeah. right? Uh, the, the, the chem cam Nobody seems to be in yep, pain yep. when Bones uses his tricorder, but <laughs> yeah. that would be pretty funny if it came at a cost. It's like, all right, I'm going to use this. and like, Maybe okay. there's a part Ooh. of the spectrum we don't know about subspace so light. far beyond what if they just fold the light into somebody get the spectra and then fold it unfold it in like a tiny little Wait. space bubble like warp space to fold like a light beam inside of somebody but now like this is crazy. i don't know i don't know tiny <laughs> wormholes tiny wormholes <laughs> i was thinking more like neutrinos or something oh yeah where you could, okay like, pass through because like talking about a whole different subject but like atoms are mostly empty space you yeah know? and so there's tiny tiny subatomic particles that can pass through them so maybe you could get like through a certain later and then like somehow you'd have to make your spectrum your uh, tricorder able to not be passed through by neutrinos because like our current best yeah. way of detecting neutrinos is to fill a giant cave in japan full of water yeah, and definitely. wait for one of them to hit the wall and then maybe you see a little <laughs> like, blue flash yeah. it's like aha it did it <laughs> Then you have another spectrometer. Maybe to watch maybe it's that, like maybe you know. tricorders are like the TARDIS and they're like bigger on the inside. Oh yeah, in order to fit because all the instruments they're that huge. we're talking about in an actual laboratory, you know, I used the secondary ion mass spectrometer in the few buildings over from here. There's a basement and we have one, and it's about the size of like a smart car. Yeah, I'd say. Well, but, by the 24th century, yeah. the 23rd century, you know, all the technology is going to shrink. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a limit to what you can fit on a silicone chip. Yeah. I saw a concept for a tunable laser spectrometer that was definitely no bigger than my pinky, though. Interesting. So, how good was it, though? How it, good was it? It's, it's supposed to be as good as the one that's on Curiosity right now. 
and it basically yeah, it has mirrors so it can oh, so the it, the uh, the the laser will pass through a bunch of the atmosphere inside of the spectrometer a lot of times because mm. it's bouncing back and forth. Yeah. And then that's the way you get that resolution. Yeah, but you couldn't scan a rock with that. No, yeah, definitely yeah, no rock like, scanning. Yeah, yeah but you, you need to vaporize the rock first. So if I wanted to, to tricord you, I'd need to vaporize you first. Using that technique, I, I prefer the, you know, let me emit some gases. Yeah. Use your mass spectrometer then, and then determine <laughs> that I'm alive allow from me that. To emit yeah. some gases. Yeah. So yeah. usually in Star Trek, they point the tricorder, it makes noises, and they say, here's a bio sign, and then they walk over to it. But yeah, because I was just thinking, it's like, I can't recall too many instances in the Star Trek universe where they like, go to an uninhabited planet that's just microbes, you know, yeah. or something like that. Because, well, I, I think that that's very exciting. It doesn't necessarily make for a terribly interesting episode that deals with, you know, the fundamentals of human nature or something like that. <laughs> but, you know, if you had a tricorder and you were walking around on the surface of an alien planet and pointing your, your spectrometer at the rocks that you went by or things that looked like they had a slightly different texture and... Later, you go back to your little space lab and you look at all these spectra and go back and forth with some library spectra that you collected back in your laboratory on Earth. And then you say, okay, yes, this is a possible biosignature over here. We're going to go back there tomorrow and we'll take some of these samples and all this stuff. And you then know, maybe you'll find a, out. Yeah, but like you're sort of, you know, point and shoot. There's a biosign. There's yeah. just that those extra steps yeah. are somehow being read out to you mm -hmm. on the surface of that screen. And honestly, like, you know, the tricorder isn't so crazy because there's definitely a lot of interest in developing handheld, hand like, handheld instruments for biosignature searching. We're envisioning a not-so-distant future, maybe, I'd say, I'll even go so far as to say definitely, you know, within our lifetimes, sending people to the surface of Mars to cover more ground and collect this With kind of data. Stuff, so, yeah. yeah, and it's not as, you know, it's expensive to launch heavy things into space, you know, is the thing. So if you can, you're absolutely right. Like, things get smaller and smaller with time. We figure out how to build something like a mass spectrometer, but then condense it down into this tiny little block that can fit on the back of a rover and run on the same amount of energy as a tiny light bulb or something like that. So certainly possible. But yeah, there are real-life tricorders that people are working on. There's, there's one in Bethany's, uh, so our mutual advisor's lab, a spectrometer that can be worn as a backpack and has oh, a that's little wand I worked, yeah, that you point at yeah. things. Um, that's so it's, cool. It's big. Yeah. The biggest part of it is actually the cooling system for the, the infrared. Uh, yeah. Because yeah. the, <laughs> um, the, the, the like, spectrometers themselves are basically, at this point, just really fancy digital cameras. They just take in more light, just different wavelengths of light. Mm -hmm. But the problem with IR is that it's heat. And yeah. so basically it would be like sticking your ca on Earth, it would be like sticking your camera inside of a room with lights literally everywhere, just blazing all the time. Mm -hmm. So in order to get any kind of useful data on an infrared camp, which is unfortunately like the most useful part of the spectrum yeah. uh, for Especially a lot of Especially for this, biosignatures. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Especially for like water absorptions and carbon bonds and stuff. It's just very important you need to have a massive cooling unit so mm -hmm. that's that's really the barrier to size on these because like 
at this point people have flown spectrometers on certain like small drones and stuff but there's only limited information you can get out of visible spectroscopy because really it's just our eyes are visual are crude visual spectrometers like i'm seeing your shirt as being black because of the way that your shirt is absorbing and emitting light so there's not like too much information you can get out of that level of spectroscopy that you couldn't get just by like carefully looking at a picture whereas infrared is so useful but it's also so clunky because yeah. of refrigerators yeah so the tricorder has some sort of super cooling I mean, yeah i mean say like quantum cooling like so just throw in a science word and, yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 microverse cooling like I don't know. yeah <laughs> and somehow ins- insulated enough or it could be good, like ridiculously insulated and, yeah 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 it's interesting Yep. And, like, how large is the aperture? Like, because usually when they're scanning someone, yeah. they're, like, running it, like, around, around. their face. Yeah. It's not like a slit chest, that opens like... and closes. It's, yeah. It's constantly data collecting. So. Yeah. Which is so. sort of, like, the one that I'm using right now is, like, you put, you put a rock on a stage underneath of it, and it slides across, and it builds yeah. builds the image line by line. But it certainly mm-hmm. is not sophisticated enough to do any kind of, like, if I were to pick it up and move it around. Yeah. And, Figure eights, yeah, you know, yeah. like stick it Spatial, up someone's nose. It's, it's, not, it's not good at 3D reasoning right now. So. Yeah. But that, that not impossible. Fixed. Yeah, that's certainly not impossible. The cooling is what I think is going to be harder to deal with. Yeah. Well, we have a couple hundred years to figure it all out. Yeah, I don't want to work on that, man. That's material science. That's not rocks. <laughs> it's not rocks. So my last question for you guys is, well, how do you envision us going out for the very first time and decisively concluding <laughs> that we have found extraterrestrial life. What kind of tricorder method do you think we would need to use? Where do you think we will make this discovery? And when do you think it'll happen? Oh God, do you want to go first? Because I'm a cynic. <laughs> I'm, I don't know, I'm pretty optimistic on okay, this Okay, I'll, I'll go first um... so that we can end on a, on a, on a, high, <laughs> note, a high note here. Go so ahead. I think the only way that we're going to convince, like, average Joe Schmo from middle America that we've actually found life and that uh, people might need to reevaluate their positions on their place in the universe is if we actually take a microscope to somewhere like Mars, which will probably, or Europa or Enceladus, that has the possibility of finding water and carbon-based life that will look like our life and kind of act on a similar time scale to our life. Um, if you send somebody, got their boots on the ground on Mars, for instance, goes and digs into like a hydrothermal system where there could be these kind of humatrophs that Cecilia was talking about earlier, and actually just no science mumbo-jumbo just takes a picture, a video of a thing wiggling around on its own under the microscope, that will be the day when we can say this is alive. So it's it's really my opinion going to be somebody with their boots in the mud somewhere on like Mars or Europa or Enceladus where there's water. We'll put a microscope down and take a video of a thing squiggling. <laughs> that, that is what I think it has to take. But I mean, certainly we won't know where to go look to put our guy with boots in the mud with a microscope to take a video of a thing squiggling unless we use these kind of broader methods to get there. It'd be like walking up close to a dartboard to place your dart instead of throwing it from all the way back and just hoping for the best. I'm definitely a lot more optimistic, I think, about the search for life. And and in terms of convincing people of it, some poll was done. Most 
Americans actually believe, believe in aliens in extraterrestrial yeah. life. You know, Joe Schmo's probably like, oh yeah, you know, I've seen ten of these. You know, <laughs> <laughs> ten aliens. So it's like I watched Star Trek. There's a I was abducted. <laughs> yeah, and it's just you know, and I I love that. You know, it's my main motivation um, for science is that I think everybody loves aliens. You know, everyone's excited about them. With you know, with the exception of a few grumps, alien uh, grinches. But yeah, but in terms of what I envision as like, here is our definitive evidence of life, I don't necessarily think that you need a video of something wriggling around. So there's there's life everywhere on Earth. Like, you're hard pressed on Earth to find something that hasn't been colonized by something in some way. You know, we have, we have microbes that can live off of atomic hydrogen. You know, and there's nothing else to eat. They will still move down there to the bottom of a gold mine in South Africa and eat it. They'll eat the nothing, you know, and they'll make a go of it anyway. So I don't think that there are too many physical barriers to life on other terrestrial worlds. I think that there's any number of ways to get the conditions that you need for that life to survive. And then I think there's a myriad of ways to get the conditions you need for life to be preserved as well. And the event that it's ancient and no longer present at the surface. How I think we'll find it, I think we'll find it the way that we found evidence of ancient life on our own planet. We'll look for things that look like microfossils, we'll look for isotopically like carbon, we'll look for increasingly complex organic molecules, we'll look for, you know, certain patterns of oxidation and clay mineral production and everything and look at the patterns of minerals on a surface and it will be all of these combined lines of evidence that will eventually make it too difficult for us to claim that, okay, this is still abiotic. At some point, you get enough evidence together that the best explanation is life. So that's what happened with our discovery of ancient microbial fossils on Earth. And once we started finding them and confirming them, then we started kind of seeing them everywhere. But yeah, so I envision our search for life being more about these ancient biosignatures, places that we can tell used to be wet or used to be warm, at least for a few thousand years at a time, according to climate models, then that's where we will probably see extraterrestrial life first. That concludes Episodes 8 and 9 of Strange New Worlds. We hope you've learned about chemosynthetic organisms and what scientists consider biosignatures in the context of the search for extraterrestrial life, and have a better idea of how a tricorder might work. In addition to being a brilliant scientist, our guest Cecilia Sanders is also an incredible poet. She brought a few verses to share with us. So I'll see you out there and leave you with this piece of art. The poem is called The Dark That Matters. The galaxy is large, but not large enough to keep the stars spinning as fast as they do. Maybe Kepler was wrong. Maybe we don't know enough about gravity. Maybe we haven't discovered the right supermassive particles yet. All we know is there is something there that we cannot see that sheds no light, absorbs no energy. All it does is bind us together, a warm halo of dark matter without which we would be adrift in intergalactic space. There is a dark matter between people too, I think, something unseeable and untouchable that nevertheless keeps us in orbit around each other, that keeps us close, together, united. Love is like dark matter. What an obvious comparison. 
I hope someone has written about it before. I hope someone has written about it more eloquently than me. But love is the unknowable thing that binds us together as a people, as a family. Love is neutrinos, love is compact halo objects, love is gravity. Love is we, and we are the dark that matters.